The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe for this Friday, the 5th of May in London. Coming up today... Too big to fail, but not too big to pay. The FDIC gets set to tap large lenders. Headed in one direction only, US regional bank shares continue to plunge. It could have been worse. Early local election results hit the Conservatives, but failed to deliver a knockout blow. The BOE's guilty plea bargain. The law shows up to the AI debate. And what's Russian to see you in court? Those are the stories we're looking at in today's papers. I'm James Wilcock. Plus, pressing ahead. No government for 15 months, but businesses in Northern Ireland tell us they're moving forward with growth plans. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning, I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Here are the stories that we're following today. The US is poised to target large banks to replenish the government's deposit insurance bank stop. The Bloomberg understands that smaller lenders will be exempt from the plans to top up the FDIC fund, which has been depleted after a number of bank failures. The revelation comes as the agency weighs increasing business deposit insurance. Byron Donalds is a Republican member of the House Committee on Financial Services. He told Bloomberg it's a mistake. No, I don't support uh, modifications to FDIC insurance. The issue we have here is that some of the regional banks were long treasuries because they didn't really understand or realize that what was going to happen with interest rate moves... Representative Donald spoke to Bloomberg after the FDIC announced it favours a sweeping overhaul of deposit insurance in the wake of recent events. The debate around deposit insurance comes as US regional banks continue to see massive share price moves. PacWest, First Horizon and Western Alliance led a renewed slide as concerns over the sector grow. But Daniel Tabash, the founder of the Tabash Report, says that it's not just the share prices that we should be worried about. The market is considering how this feeds into credit risk. And when banks have these kind of stresses on the liquidity side, they tend to want to pull in loans, not to lend as much. And that actually could lead to more defaults, ironically. 
Daniel Tabish spoke to us as evidence emerged that betting against US regional bank stocks has proved lucrative for short sellers. Data from S3 Partners shows that they're now sitting on $7 billion in paper profits for the year iPhone sales rebounded to their best March quarter on record, helping the world's most valuable company top earnings estimates. Apple CEO Tim Cook singled out India in the earnings call, underscoring its potential as a growth engine for the tech giant. India is an incredibly exciting market. Uh, It's a major focus for us. Uh, I was just there and the dynamism in the market The vibrancy is unbelievable. There are a lot of people coming into the middle class and I I really feel that India is at a tipping point. Tim Cook was speaking to analysts after Apple announced close to $95 billion in total sales, suggesting the firm is beginning to recover from an industry-wide slump. Now, local election results are starting to trickle in from across the UK and the direction of travel is clear. The Conservatives have lost more than 100 councillors, whilst Labour has added more than 70. The shadow leader of the House of Commons, Tangam Debonair, is optimistic about the party's performance. 2019 was a low watermark for the Tories. It wasn't a great year for Labour either. And I think the turnaround that we've seen under Keir Starmer's leadership has been absolutely outstanding. Tangham Debonair's positivity contrasts with the pessimism of the Conservatives, who have been setting expectations low ahead of the results. The full picture on how all the parties have performed is unlikely to become clear until at least later in the day. It's been a year since the last election to Northern Ireland's Assembly, but there's still no sign of a government being formed there. Businesses in the region say they're pressing on with expansion plans regardless. Lee Mayer leads Citigroup's operations in Belfast. Over the last five years, we probably haven't had an executive for more than uh, more than a year. And so we've had to move forward. And I think that what that is doing is it's actually building the confidence of the business community to make effective decisions and grow the business, their businesses and the economy, irrespective of whether they've got support from the government. We would like that to change. We would like to have a sitting executive. We are very engaged when they are sitting, but it is not a constraint for our business growth. That's Lee Mayer from City, which is one of the biggest private sector employers in Northern Ireland. President Joe Biden has promised massive US investment for the region if the parties can agree to form a power-sharing government. One of Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's economic advisers says that it will take more than just tax cuts to create growth. Anna Valero, senior policy fellow at the London School of Economics, says the money that would be spent on tax cuts could be better spent on other growth-boosting measures. If it was as easy as cutting taxes, then we would have seen that during the years that we had particularly low corporate tax, for example, as the main rate of corporate tax was 19%, perhaps we would have seen slightly higher business investment. I think the tax environment matters, but there are many other things we need to be doing for improving growth. And also within the tax environment, we can be thinking about incentives for investment rather than the headline rate. Valero, who has joined the Chancellor's Economic Advisory Council, also underlined the importance of encouraging business investment and reforming pensions regulations. The remarks underscore the competing demands that Hunt faces if he finds money for giveaways ahead of the next general election, which is expected in 2024. 
So those are our top stories on the programme this morning. Um, interesting, we've been talking to uh, a lot of, and hearing from a lot of bank CEOs over the past week or so about their results for the most mm. recent quarter. We've been asking questions about deposit outflows here in the UK, and we spoke to the CFO of Virgin Money yesterday um, as well, and they have largely been telling us there hasn't been much knock-on effect from the banking turmoil that we've seen in other parts of the world. But actually, the Bank of England's figures on deposit moves are quite interesting. Yeah, they are. They came out around lunchtime yesterday, but I do think that they're remarkable. That's why I sort of want to highlight it now, because almost £5 billion um, was removed from bank accounts by households in March. That's the first decline in almost five years, and it was £5.8 billion for businesses. Um, so yes, Bank of England data basically was after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, also the takeover of Credit Suisse, so some um, sort of concerns, even some panic you might say. I thought it was just interesting that householders were yeah. so aware of this move. Although Ashley Webb, who's an economist at Capital Economics, says not a bank run. Total UK bank deposits fell in March as concerns over the banking sector rose. Money flowed into gilts instead. And so it's not big enough, he says, uh, for it to constitute actually a bank run. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really interesting to see in the context of what we've been hearing from banks in the UK about mm-hmm. the the lack of suppose knock on effect from from bank contagion uh, elsewhere. You heard in our top stories there an extract of our interview with Lee Mayer from City, who runs the bank's operations in Northern Ireland. This is part of a report we'll be bringing to you uh, a little bit later on. Uh, that we've been looking at the optimism that we've heard around the prospects of Northern Ireland's economy. Rishi Sunak talking about it being a u- in a unique and privileged position after the Windsor framework because businesses in Northern Ireland can ac- access the UK and EU single markets with Joe Biden promising massive American investment. Mm-hmm. So lots of optimism. And I went to Belfast to find out how businesses feel about it and also how people living there, particularly those young people who've grown up in post the 1998 peace agreement mm. feel about the prospects for Northern Ireland's economy. Really interesting to hear businesses say, look, the fact that there's not a government is something that they can't let them hold them back. So they're pressing ahead with investments, the likes of, of City hiring more people at their Belfast operations as well. Not quite the same situation, though, for young people who are living in Northern Ireland who definitely are very frustrated with the political situation. A year on from elections, still no government. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to that special report that we'll bring you in just a moment. Let's also get more details, though, now on the term more facing uh, US banks. Shares in PacWest, First Horizon and Western Alliance all plunged again on Thursday. And we also talked about the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation drafting up plans to shore up its own finances. Our markets reporter Valerie Titel is in the radio studio with us for more. What do we actually know about this FDIC proposal? Uh, Bloomberg is reporting that they could announce how they intend to raise this special fee as early as next week. Now remember, they're sitting around $23 billion worth of losses from the first two bank failures back in March. This does not include First Republic, right? $23 billion of losses that they're going to need to recoup. And the way they do that is they charge banks based on uh, their level of deposits. The more deposits you have, the more fee I'm going to charge you. Bloomberg is also reporting that they intend on charging the bigger banks slightly more. What, what, what would this mean then for those banks if they ended up having to, to pay more into this fund? So if we look at back at the 2009 example, when the FDIC did something very similar, they were sitting on $20 billion of losses, did a special fee uh, in order to recoup that. It really did hurt some of the bank's bottom line. If you look at what happened to JP Morgan, this was in the second quarter of 2009. It shaved $0.10 cents off their earnings per share. And Wells Fargo had an $0.08 cents 
earnings per share hit. So this does have a potential to be very painful for the big lenders, especially because the FDIC has absolute full discretion on how they intend to raise this uh, raise this money. They don't necessarily uh, have to follow any strict rules about loss sharing across all FDIC banks. They could target the big banks if they wanted to. Okay, that's really interesting. Meanwhile, of course, the share slide for regional banks continues in the US. What's the latest in terms of the options and what these banks might do? Look, they need to find a buyer. They need to raise equity or raise capital in some way by divesting some of their loans or doing a capital raise. But the thing that we can take from the First Republic example is that there were no bidders for First Republic until the FDIC got involved with some sort of law sharing agreement. And that tells us that maybe these big lenders don't see a lot of value in these regional banks' business models. The one thing I did find really interesting about the market session yesterday is at the worst of the session, the the front end of the rates curve priced in a full 25 basis Mm. point Fed cut by July. I think the market is telling us that it does not think the regional bank problem will be solved until the Fed cuts rates and re-inverts the curve, helping these lenders with their profitability issue. So in the meantime, what happens? In the meantime, it's going to be a slow bleed. We're going to see these lenders uh, struggle with profitability, struggle with holding on to deposits because essentially they can't afford to pay 5% interest to keep these deposits. And those deposits are going to go elsewhere to money market funds, to other banks who can char- who can pay 5% to hold on to their deposits. But essentially their business model won't be that profitable if they do that. And it's going to be a, a probably a slow bleed in these uh, in these equity markets until they find some sort of buyer. Yeah, absolutely painful. Valerie, thank you so much. I know you'll keep us across this story throughout the morning. Our markets reporter, Valerie Titel. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, you've been in Northern Ireland recently, Stephen, and you brought us uh, some special reporting. Um, very interesting in terms of what local businesses are thinking about 
uh, in the region. This after the visit of President Joe Biden. Yeah, look, there's been so much optimism about the Northern Irish economy. You had, on one hand, Rishi Sunak telling Northern Ireland it was a unique and privileged position because of its access to the UK and EU markets after the Windsor framework deal. Then you had Joe Biden saying that American companies were ready to with massive investment if power-sharing government has been restored. Now, it's actually a year today since the last elections mm-hmm. to the Northern Ireland Assembly. There's still no government in place because of objections from the Democratic Unionist Party. So I wanted to ask businesses and local residents in Northern Ireland how they feel about this promise of prosperity. When you're thinking about the past and the future of Northern Ireland's economy, the waterfront in Belfast is a good place to start. We're in the shadow of the cranes of the Harland and Wolf shipyard, but also now lining the banks of the Lagan are glittering office blocks. The latest has seen the likes of American law firm Baker McKenzie move in. The hope here is that after the Windsor Framework Agreement and promises of American investment from US President Joe Biden is that there's more of those sort of businesses that will come here. Absolutely, we've seen American interest and we've, had, we've seen that interest before in Joe Biden's visit and before the Windsor Framework. I would expect to see much greater interest and further proliferation of that interest. That's Joe O'Neill, CEO of Belfast Harbour, one of the biggest commercial property owners in the city. I am Belfast Harbour. I am the rise and the fall of the tide. I am the breath and the life and the pride. This poem was commissioned to mark the port's 175th year. It talks of a long tradition of innovation. For Joe O'Neill, the Windsor Framework deal on post-Brexit trade rules brings the possibility of a new beginning. I think we're only just starting to see global companies, global manufacturing companies now looking at Belfast and the region with more detail because I think they've got a certainty that, yes, this this feels tangible now and this feels like an opportunity that we should be seriously assessing. That opportunity is something the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has been keen to highlight. Northern Ireland is in the unbelievably special position, unique position in the entire world, European continent, in having privileged access, not just to the UK home market, but also the European Union single market. So can the region capitalise on this unique position? The bank city is one of the biggest private sector employers in Northern Ireland, with over 3,700 staff. Lee Mayer leads its operations in Belfast. One of the challenges is that people need to uh, understand that Northern Ireland is exactly the same as any other part of, of Europe or of the UK, and that you know, we really have the same kind of uh, expertise. Mayer says the relative size of the region has helped them to tackle skills shortages experienced elsewhere, particularly in technology. We have this ability to influence uh, curricula for for degree and post-degree purposes at the universities. So if we had uh, something in a particular language that we wanted to focus on, we would be able to uh, speak to the university and see if we could put a module uh, of that particular language into the, uh, the degrees. But Northern Ireland suffers from a graduate brain drain. Research from 2021 found just over a third of those who left to study in Great Britain came back to work in the region afterwards. That's part of the reality facing the generation who grew up here since the 1998 peace agreement. Those like 27-year-old Sean Ogle. I've had an an awful lot of friends that have moved away actually to a a big mix of places. And I think most have moved for economic reasons. Most have moved for work, which is, you know, quite sad because I do think that a lot of them would have stayed here if the opportunities had presented themselves. 
Emer Smith, who's also 27, is training as a barrister in Belfast. If I was only going on the economy, I wouldn't stay here. My choice to become a barrister and to stay here isn't because I think that Northern Ireland is a great place to live or a great place to raise a family or a great place to have a great career. My reason to stay here is because I think that there is potential in Northern Ireland and I would like to wait and to see if that happens and to be a part of that change. The missing piece of this puzzle is the lack of a functioning government in Northern Ireland. The Stormont Assembly Building, set in rolling parkland overlooking Belfast, lies dormant. There hasn't been a power-sharing executive sitting here in 15 months. Lee Mayer from City says business has had to carry on. Over the last five years, we probably haven't had an executive for more than uh, more than a year. And so we've had to move forward. And I think that what that is doing is it's actually building the confidence of the business community to make effective decisions and grow the business, their businesses and the economy, irrespective of whether they've got support from the government. We would like that to change. We would like to have a sitting executive. A sentiment shared by Joe O'Neill from Belfast Harbour. Political stability goes to the heart of most foreign direct investment decisions. So I think we can't hide that if we were able to signpost an offer that reassurance to foreign direct investors that there is a sitting assembly that's that is clearly beneficial but in the meantime it hasn't stopped us particularly in Belfast Harbour with pushing ahead with our investment plans. While business may be able to press on Emer Smith and Sean Ogle feel the sense of missed opportunities. I would really encourage um, political leaders to lead from the front. There's a thing that I always think is missing and that's political grace. There comes a point in time where you have to actually be able to make decisions that are for the greater good. It's deeply frustrating because I really do want it to succeed. I think there is so much positive things to sing and dance about about Northern Ireland. You know, there's so much going for it, yet we're being so held back by things that are legacy issues from the past. As ever in Northern Ireland, the past looms large over the present. As the paralysis at Stormont continues, The question now is whether its politicians can focus on the future. So, uh, reporting from Northern Ireland, Stephen, so interesting to hear, you know, businesses and actually what they're thinking about, how they're feeling about the situation, the lack of a local regional government there. It does mean that the Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, is the one who's making decisions for budget Mm. in Northern Ireland. Is there any sign of of a breakthrough in terms of changing this? Not for the moment. And that doesn't mean that there can't be one. You know, as as we heard in that report there, over the history of the Northern Ireland power sharing government, there's been a lot of times where the government has not worked and parties have been able to come together and find a deal. So it's a question of, I suppose, what triggers that. In the meantime, though, the most pressing issue for people in Northern Ireland is the squeeze on public services because uh, as a result of that budget being set by Chris Heaton-Harris and the overspend by the Stormont localist um, officials, essentially, because there have been no ministers in place since mm. October, uh, means that there are going to be big budgetary constraints on things like the health service, education, in Northern Ireland as well and that's going to be something that people feel very keenly. Okay, Stephen, thank you so much. You can read Stephen's uh, full uh, write-up and reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal also. Thank you so much. Up next, the BOE's bargain for confessions. The law shows up to the AI debate and what's Russian for see you in court? Now, the paper review on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The news you need to know from today's papers. 
Bloomberg's James Wilcock joins us now for a look through the newspapers. The Bank of England looks to cut city wrongdoing penalties. That story in the Financial Times. Yes, good morning, Caroline. So this is all about the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority. That's the arm that deals with kind of financial crime. Um, they are... are talking about upping their penalties to 50%. So effectively, if you come clean and say, I've done this crime, here's the evidence, really sorry, you can get a discount on the penalty of up to half. Now, it was already 30%, and obviously the Bank and the Prudential Regulation Authority retained discretion over how they use that. Um, but this story is fascinating because as we talk about the FCA this week, we've also talked about pay this week, ways to free up the city. This it proposes being mooted as a way of clearing up the backlog and making the PRA more efficient. Efficient. City Minister Andrew Griffith has publicly admonished them in the past of operational efficiency. And it's 10 years to the day, actually, since the PRs were created. It was created in April 2013. So it is. Oh, 10 years, it, wow. It's gone so quickly. And so this whole question now of. In some ways, the PRA has been incredibly effective. And we look at what happened just recently with SVB. Mm. But in the other sense, it's been accused of being excessively risk averse and slow to act. And there have been tales, which is where the city minister comes in, of deals not getting across the line because it's taken so long to come across. So this proposal is a fascinating way, taken as a review. It's, con- it's out for consultation. It'll be back in August as to a way to sort of free up time, encourage people to come forward and uh, potentially get a discount on any kind of wrongdoing. Um, let's go next, James, to The Guardian, summing up a busy week for the AI, AI industry and regulation. Yes, Stephen. So this space is moving so, so quickly. And we have seen this week we uh, a large letter from people like Elon Musk with mass amounts of signatories. We've seen the CMA, the UK regulators, say they have started a review. And most recently seen the White House advising tech firms of their, quote, fundamental responsibility to develop safe products. And it's all because people fear there are multiple races at the bottom going on here. Companies don't want to be the last to sort of put out their first new model and also there's a fear that safeguards as well as sort of national security are at risk leading that you might get sort of more and more AI models just put out there now I mean Aggie Cantrell uh, was speaking to a man called Christoph Schumann uh, who is the founder of Lion the large scale AI open network they open source all their AI and the focus of her piece was the models that you see trained on Google or ChatGPT you don't know what's in them but a lot of them say they are using just open source data and the free and rules around that are also completely it's uncharted territory so into this mess walks the regulators and they're saying we are watching we are increasingly trying to figure out what the rules and ethics space are while sort of this wild west is happening and there are kind of clear mm. ethical principles we expect you to abide by while we figure out what the rules of the space could be yeah, I think that's the thing. Nobody's written the playbook yet. And yet this is potentially the second internet revolution, isn't it? Um, also, there's another uh, nice story just to end on here. Um, in City AM, writing about the number of Russians using uh, London courts, but a specific type of court. This is the commercial courts. Um, yeah, I thought this was really interesting in terms of numbers, given the sanctions. Yes, and it is hit the largest amount ever. Um, after Brits, the most likely people to be using the commercial courts are Russians. Uh, Brits, 441 suits and Russians 58 um, in the past year. And what is fascinating about that is that is still continuing, like you say, despite the sanctions. Uh, and it comes after, you know, this has been a decade of you know incredible Russian use where they come into London seeking fair arbitration, seeking clear accessible law. Uh, I go back to the Abramovich Berezovsky suit, which was $6.5 billion a decade ago over the sort of oil uh, profits gained in Russia. And that is still happening now. But that hits 
the report says may still come because now law firms are so incentivized against taking on any new Russian clients yes. that this might have peaked. So it, it was good while it lasted, but this might be kind of nearing the end of where it goes from here on in. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.